We always think of the gesture of erasure as something silent, but in this book I can also imagine some sort of noise. Hello, and welcome to the Yaya Nenene podcast. My name is Arif. My name is Ratna. And we are here today with Martin Laroche. Hello. And we are on a special location also because we are not in our regular studio, but we are at your studio, Martin. And I really like it here. I try to focus on speaking with you, but I, all the time my eyes go in different directions because there are so many... Um, materials and books and papers and even uh, ginkgo leaves and boxes and uh, glasses I see um, around us which is uh, nice yeah it's nice to have you here I feel that it's like a <laughs> like a spaceship in a way <laughs> also like the there is a big plant behind you Radna oh yeah <laughs> and then there are the glasses and I feel like yeah Yeah, it's one of these super sunny days that feels like it's never going to change, right? It also adds to the spaceship atmosphere. There are all kinds of connections and reasons why we have you on the podcast, Martin. And one of them uh, is our voice message from today, which is the artist contribution that we always have on the podcast. And uh, this one is by Fernanda Aranguiz M., We will listen to that and then we will speak about the voice message with you. But we will also speak about a project called Murusur. Me. Who writes or who is now writing? writing the translation of ideas and thoughts into drawings drawings Words, words, meaning contained in a set of letters, letters, shapes, made of dots and lines usually with a pencil and on a sheet of paper paper, support of impressions, impressions, emotions through language. language the word for the act of writing and 
act of reading. Reading the interpretation of all types or kinds of science from some support support a means of sharing sharing publishing publishing transforming the real into the possible yes yeah, so this was qualia by fernanda she sent this to us in november 2020 from chile but we met fernanda um, Ratna and I, in 2019 at the Printing Plant Art Book Fair, where she joined one of our radio shows, which was titled Publishing as Critical Practice, and we'll put that in the show notes of the podcast. And um, Fernanda presented a publication there that unfolds in different ways, where she took titles of a, another book and reordered them to form her own titles, and so the reader could kind of unfold the book in different ways. And after that, we yeah we stayed in touch. Um, we can speak a bit more about um, also writing and maybe in relation to Fernanda's practice as we understood it. But yeah, I discovered, Martin, that you also know Fernanda. How do you know her? It's interesting because <clears throat> I was thinking exactly how we met. And I can, in my head, I have like two different paths that maybe lead, led me to Fernanda. And one is through yeah, some friends, Naranja. There are these two publishers, Sebastian and Sebastian. They are artists and also, uh, yeah, they have an artist book publisher and library in Santiago. And they are very close to Fernanda. So I probably met her through them. But there is another chance that I met also Fernanda through another friend, Ana Maria, that Ana Maria has this, uh, uh, she ran a project called Murosur long time ago in Chile. And through Ana Maria, she's very close to an artist called Monica Bengoa. And I think Fernanda worked as an assistant for Monica Bengoa. And then they were friends. So somehow like there are these two possible threads. But it was probably through Naranja. And you also have a, another publication uh, of Fernanda here on the table that you actually just showed us before we, we started to speak. I don't know, I will just respond a bit. When I was listening, I thought about the act of writing because we listened to the sound of writing and I thought, oh, there is this kind of... Mm, I'm interested when something happens simultaneously almost. So I felt like, ah, she was thinking and doing the writing and at the same part, I was listening to the act of writing. I don't know, there was a kind of energy I felt that was about the act of it. Um, and also reflecting on it at the same time, which is uh, something I find quite interesting. And but the book you have here is where she actually erased a part, yeah, most of the text and only leaves a few things behind. So I, when I was listening, I thought, oh, now I hear the sound of letters forming on the paper. And the book you have here is where the letters were, uh, the text was removed in a way. So yeah. Yeah, the book that I have here is called La Nada o el Infinito. And it was a poetry book from a poet called Jose Aldunate Undurraga. It was written in 1954, so a long time ago. And yeah, I think that she takes the title and she makes it the whole book by erasing the other book. But it's interesting because you, we always think of the gesture of erasure as something silent. But in this book, I can also imagine some sort of noise attached to this erasing. And you see the gesture of the erasing on the paper. It's not an empty paper because you see that uh, it was an action also, right? Uh, you see the traces of the 
erasing or still the traces of the text that was there, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. But I agree with you that it was also interesting for me to listen to this graffiti on the paper while she was writing. It was somehow like a, I don't know, there was some sort of pleasure related to it. And it's interesting also, yeah, maybe writing and reading is some super intellectual uh, process that we tend to, it's kind of, we need to think about it. We need to also take time, but we forget all this sound and more sensitive part of the talking. And like, we are also playing with sounds at the end. Yeah, I also remember that Fernanda told us uh, when we spoke to her, and that writing for her comes along with thinking. And it's true that all these material aspects also play a role. I brought um, a notebook that I recently got, and it has extremely soft paper. <laughs> It's just almost like getting into ASMR. <laughs> wow. Touching the piano. <laughs> oh, it's very, it's like silk smooth kind of. Silky paper. Mm. So that, yeah, that makes you want to like really think about what you write, but how you write and what we, what you use, right? <laughs> so you write differently on this paper or does it influence your notes in a way? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fernanda also made a publication. I actually didn't know this one that you just showed us, Martin. Um, but she made a publication of her notebook where she um, just kind of used the scribbles and let's say marks that we all make while writing by hand and that we don't usually make on the computer, maybe in different ways. And yeah, she kind of just published those, those scribbles. So that's maybe almost an in-between form of what we just talked about. There is, um, there is something else that I, I wanted to bring and that's... Um, Oh, I wanted to tell you about, and that's that Fernanda also designed a font, and that font is a bit like what we speak about. So the letters are partly erased or not written yet. That's a bit unclear. I think you can read that how you want. Um, I'll just show you an image, and we'll also put this in the podcast notes again. The font or the work is called Anormografo. I've first seen this on her Instagram with the the word apuebo uh, written and we maybe we can speak about that in a second but i just want to read to you um, the machine translation of the text on her website here which says between the real and the possible and between the image and the writing after all writing is just another way of drawing so i feel that really connects also to the voice message that, uh, as you maybe remember, ends with the real and the possible. But this word apuebo, Martin, that played quite a role around that time when she sent us the voice message last autumn in Chile. Yeah, no, totally. Like there, there is a need for a little bit of context of, because it's also there is a whole political process going on in Chile that started in 2019 in October. There was like a big demonstration Uh, almost yeah, like a revolution in a way that many people in Chile collectively started to demonstrate in a synchronized way. And this, of course, in the last 20 years, there were many different demonstrations like women's demonstrations, uh, students' demonstrations, workers' demonstrations, and many different issues. But for the first time, this became like a sort of national thing. The whole country stopped and there were these huge clashes with the... It all was uh, somehow triggered by a race in the, in the public transport rate that it was like a few cents of a euro It wasn't like a big amount, but still it was a little bit like the like the drop that made the glass to fall down. And also something that brought everyone together then, because I think you said, right, that there were already many protests happening or demonstrations, but not a, that groups were a bit more separate. Totally. So it was the, 
the public transport ticket that united them then. Yeah, because somehow it Im yeah it involved everyone. <laughs> everyone is somehow connected to this public transportation because it's something very tangible and physical. Mm -hmm. Also, like, you know, in Chile and particularly in Santiago, there is a whole history of demonstration and big movements, social movements that are related to public transportation. Because, yeah, as you say, Ratna, maybe something that really touched your daily life. So then it's something that you really every day so then it really affects you. you it's very graphic in a way it becomes really tangible in your life and so that day that the many people started to demonstrate they closed some metro stations and some people like make fire in some metro stations it's not completely certain how it was organized how it happened but then the whole metro line was uh, closed and this made that many people had to walk by home and that's how everything started And yeah, in this moment in Chile, there is this uh, neoliberal right-wing government that responded in a very harsh way. So the response, uh, instead of like taking care of the situation and looking for an agreement, they said like we are in, we are on a very, we are on a war. We are on a war against the citizenship. So that was also what really inflamed the whole thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, a little bit as we have been seeing in the rest of the world, there was this big struggle. And for many weeks, like for some weeks, they took out the militars to the streets. Like as a, a special situation, they decided to ask for the militars to keep control, like public control. And this like, yeah, woke up all the ghosts from the dictatorship time that ended in the 90s. So in 89, Chile voted to, in a, in a referendum to stop the dictatorship of Pinochet. And since then, there was, this, uh, there was a comeback to democracy. And there were all like these uh, political groups that tried to make a transition into democracy. And for 30 years, the country has got a, a new uh, democratical regime. But it was always like, a, it, like it started with a lot of tension. So it wasn't like a democracy was won in, in one step, but there was this whole process of coming to an agreement. The militars were still there for a long time. Pinochet was a senator of the Republic for a few years. Like he wasn't judged when he was alive. So there were all these tensions still going on, all these powers uh, that affected Chile for... So these 30 years of democracy weren't, uh, weren't easy. Well, they were super complex. And Chile since the 70s, so during Pinochet, opted for a very neoliberal approach in its economy and in all its all like uh, policies and government. So this was intensified in these 30 years. And for a while, it seemed that it was, it was going okay because also Chile got super rich in a way. If you compare it with uh, materially with previous decades, Chile got a very a huge economical growth. But this economical growth didn't consider all the people. So it was a very unequal uh, economical growth. And it's true, there were, there were uh, less poor people, but the whole country was still under this uh, regime of uh, like pyramidal, like power situation, relationships. And the same uh, relationships that were so harmful during the dictatorship somehow n were not approached during these 30 years of calm. So then there were all these conflicts of power. People feel that they weren't represented. Like we felt that we didn't have a voice in a way. So it was a, a very unequal country in terms of distribution of power as well. And at one point that became like a, yeah, it's a tendency that we see in the whole world, but at one point it exploded. And it's interesting that it exploded just before uh, COVID and just before all the different movements that we, we see around the world. Sometimes I feel that it was some sort of, it was, you could see what was going to happen afterwards. There was some sort of emotional instinct thing that happened going on. And also what you mentioned, I don't know what is the formal word for it, but this, this kind of state of exception eh, that states uh, use uh, also during the pandemic uh, for those reasons, but here for the demonstration to have a military force or special forces 
Um, I think that's a very scary part, this, this, this state of exception that suddenly um, a possible dictatorship or elements of that don't seem so far away anymore because, yeah. Exactly. Like we, we, we give for granted the freedoms or the rights that somehow we have conquered and sometimes we even don't see them. They become invisible. And when this happened, when there was this state of exception for the whole country, it was a shock. It was very regressive. All the unconscious came back to the 70s that were not healed already. They weren't fixed already. They weren't solved. And maybe it's interesting that it's not solved. But then it all came back. It was like a sort of uh, the different times overlapped. And there was this, and now we come back also to the original question about the apruebo. Like after 10 days of this uh, state of exceptions and the militars on the streets in every single city and town in Chile, like people just thought we don't want this it's too much and everyone went to the streets and there was one big demonstration just in santiago there were more than one million people on the street you need to imagine that chile would be all the citizens of amsterdam basically because <laughs> exactly. we have around one million people in amsterdam yeah and chile has a population that is very similar to the netherlands so it's around 17 million or so so and that was just in Santiago, so in Concepcion, in Arica, in Iquique, in all the cities and towns uh, around Chile, like there were people just going to the streets. So for one day, it seems like the whole country was on the street. And then what was clear is that like the majority, let's say 90% of the people were against these states of exception. And the, these 90% were against this like sort of saying we are on, on a war. So the whole political like establishment need, needed to do something because they were questioned. Like all the questions were against not just the government, but against all the politicians. So even like the politicians that would claim some sort of the, so for example, more left-wing politicians that would be for the causes of the people, like we didn't believe them because they also didn't do much for what they were claiming. So at the, at the time of voting for the laws, at the time of making policies, they were still like going towards the other direction. So then the whole people were like just asking for being a content to the politicians in a very harsh way. Uh, also, there were these uh, very beautiful moments, but there were also very harsh confrontations with the police and it wasn't easy. Like there were also many demonstrators like that had very uh, a lot of injuries. There were people that died even. I think the, the first weeks there were 23 people that died. And there were also many, many demonstrators that were shot by the police. The police were using these rubber bullets and they sh shot them on their eyes. And this was done on purpose because you could see it system systemically. So after the first months of demonstration, there were 400 uh, people that lost the, the visibility of one of their eyes or even two. And so, yeah, there was a whole, again, like this overlap, all this police brutality, how police is using its force, because you see clearly in many different cases that there was no need for this uh, police brutality, for these techniques. It, they were like war tactics used against uh, citizens. So that generated this big movement. And when there were, like, it was so massive, like imagine one million people on the streets is something like that. It really overpassed any kind of control or power. Then the political establishment had to somehow acknowledge it. And its way of acknowledging it was they proposed to rewrite the constitution. That was a long-term uh, claim by some groups that was never considered uh, important by the political establishment. So always the po uh, different politicians denied it as a need. And there is, yeah, not to make it so long, but there is a particular thing that the Constitution of Chile was written, the last one was written in the 80s by Pinochet, by Pinochet people, Pinochet boys in a way. And it was confirmed and approved by with a referendum that was completely uh, fake. So people voted with the militars uh, pointing their shotguns towards them. And I wasn't uh, alive then, I, I wasn't born then, but my parents voted with some uh, militars pointing their shotguns at them. Literal. And even they say that the results were even faked. 
because then, yeah, for a big majority, there was approved this constitution that had all these neoliberal reforms that we were talking about and that also made the whole system to be as it is. So in a way to make it super no democratic or limiting the possibilities of a democracy. So they allow democracy to be, but in a very limited and constricted uh, way. And then like there were few parties like there was one previous president of Chile Michelle Bachelet that she once even said we have to change this constitution but then everyone said it's absurd this idea is super stupid in the like again the political establishment the media like the the power in a way denied this possibility even as an idea they they made many reforms to the previous constitution but then still it was the same. It had like this sort of a ghost of Pinochet and the dictatorship. And what they proposed then was to make a new referendum to see if we wanted to rewrite the constitution. And of course, it's a big discussion, but still it's super symbolical because imagine it's like to rewrite what Pinochet like sealed with fire and iron in a way. So then that's why uh, Fernanda wrote Apruebo, because then this referendum had two choices, Apruebo or Rechazo, approve or reject this uh, new constitution, the writing of this new constitution. So it's not even to approve a particular constitution, but it was just approving the possibility of writing a new constitution. And that's what uh, it's going on in Chile now, that for a big majority, almost 90% of the country, again, voted to rewrite the constitution and write it in a different way. So write it by different social actors and by different people. And at the moment, so we are recording this in spring 21, we are in between this referendum that won, I mean, apruebo, uh, approve, I will say one. And the next one, which as I understood is uh, deciding on who gets to actually write this constitution, right? Yes. So now in April, there is a new referendum or not a referendum, but a, yeah, a new uh, poll to vote for who are the particular people who are going to represent and write the constitution. And it's very interesting because for the first time there was a, there was a, like there was an agreement that half of these people need to be women. Uh, there is also a quota for people like non-gender conforming people. And there are particular quotas for uh, original peoples of Chile. And I think this is quite incredible. If you think this has never done in any constitution in the whole planet in this way, in this way with quotas. So it's also very, yeah, maybe it's, it's still, we need to see how it will be implemented. But I think that also gives a, a possibility as Fernanda talked about the, the possible. I think it opens like new ways of understanding the possible. I think, yeah, it's very different if you make a reform or an adjustment to a, eh, a constitution or also to a text <laughs> compared to uh, starting with a blank page. And yeah, there's way more possibility, I think, in the or space for the possible when it's not about making an edit to something that is already there. Um, I'm thinking, and this is because we did speak a bit about him when I came in today, about Hans Murray Wasink. It's an artist who I have been collaborating with a lot. And Martin, you also uh, met him uh, briefly uh, last year. He, has, he makes a lot of notes and writing and shares this writing also with people. And he has a tiny note that I uh, have in my house on... Uh, yeah, on a desk, basically. I see it as a work. It's just a tiny note, but it says, uh, equal relationships plus people speaking for themselves will save the world. And I think, yeah, <laughs> it's so, it's just this one sentence, but uh, I think there's a big uh, truth in it. And also, yeah, hearing now about who will write this constitution and what people will be represented in the writing, I think is... Uh, very beautiful to hear that this came out of these big demonstrations. I think it's interesting what you say also in relationship to learning and to learning how to write. 
I think what is very appealing to me from Sun's work is that it really invites you to be part. It's like you say, there are many components. It invites you to select some. It invites you, it really puts you as an equal, as a reader, as a viewer, as an audience. And I can really relate that to what is happening in Chile, that, you know, the bestseller, the most uh, sold book, Uh, in 2019 in Chile and I think even in 2020 was the constitution <laughs> <laughs> it's a big hit <laughs> and there is also something super kind of crazy that the whole country all the people are talking about this uh, all these conversations being held in every single house in every single like group in every single like uh, social space like all the I people I have no clue what is in the Dutch constitution <laughs> to be honest like I feel so distant from it so I'm t yeah but exactly I had no idea about Chilean constitution or just like some very vague notions but then everyone had to read it I had to read it and then you start to be like also implicated in this legal terminology like in this language it's like every It's like that's also interesting to see that there is this very concrete situation that brings everyone into sort of some sort of learning process because also to have an argument and to have a position you need to somehow yeah uh, come together and discuss and understand and tr or try to understand I'm also thinking back to the publication that's still on the table here uh, that Fernanda made um, where she erased almost all of the book And one of the things that remains is the sublime paradox. But let's speak maybe a bit about the metaphor of making space also for political change, but also space for artists to come together, because there is a similar maybe situation that happened in the 90s related to Murusur that you already briefly mentioned. And maybe you could also tell us a bit about that. Well, it's interesting also to talk about it in this context of what we are talking about. But yeah, you know, there is this person that is Ana Maria Fernandez. She's a, a, a very good friend. I met her when I came to the Netherlands. She lives in Amsterdam. And the way in which I met her is because there were three persons in Chile before I came here. And the three in different moments told me, you need to meet Ana Maria you need to meet Ana Maria. And then there was a third one, send me an email, Martin, you need to contact Ana Maria, please write her. So yeah, when you receive this three times, you're tempted to do it. So <laughs> I wrote her and it was very special to meet uh, Ana Maria because you know Ana Maria, she's not an artist, but she has been her whole life somehow related to artists. So she's someone that really enjoys being with artists and having artists in her life. And she came in the 70s to Europe, also escaping the political situation and for political reasons. And then she lived for a long time in the Netherlands. And it happened that when Chile uh, came back to democracy, Um, she was named as the cultural attaché of Chile in the Netherlands. So at that time, she started to be uh, concretely engaged with artists and she met many. And after yeah, 20 years or more of living here, she thought, you know, I want to come back to my country. I want to come back to Chile and do something there and live there. I'm, I really have the desire to, to be there. And she came back to Santiago And she had a loft, like a, in the center of, of Santiago, in a very central neighborhood called uh, Barrio Brasil, in the Plaza Brasil, like there is this square. And there were, it was a very uh, like classical neighborhood with this colonial architecture. And the, it was a very uh, middle class neighborhood, uh, very classical from Santiago. But then they built this renovated loft that had like three floors or uh, two floors that were continuous. So there were these big spaces. And there were many artists that live in these neighborhoods and people related to theater, people related to the different uh, cultural scene. And she just was living there and engaging with the artists. And all the artists were complaining a lot. Because they said, yeah, you know, like nothing happens here in Chile, in Santiago. Particularly, she was engaging with the Santiago scene. Nothing happens here. And we don't have spaces. 
and the only spaces that exist are all very institutional and they all have this burden of dictatorship. So all the people in charge of these spaces are not open enough, they are not experimental enough. So they have a very limited or conservative conception of what art can be, is or the possible. So then they were they didn't want to engage with any kind of uh, art institution and art spaces. And then Ana Maria said, but yeah, but we should do something because they wanted to do something still. And she said, why don't we do something uh, at my place? And people would say, but how come? She would say, we just use the wall, <laughs> like the, you know, the southern wall that is like very, it involves like the three uh, floors. So then, yeah, we have some uh, space there. And it was her living uh, space. It was yeah. her living yeah. space. So it was something very simple and that now we're super used to also. Like there are all these art initiatives and artists that we know that they have an art space in their homes or in their apartments or in their studios. But at that time in Santiago, it was people didn't think so much about it because you, yeah, you, it wasn't like an option because you were coming out of this very constrained process in which all was about going against the establishment But then when it came to create your own sort of organization, it was complex. And Ana Maria proposed them like a few artists to do something on the southern wall of her, of her place, of her apartment. And it was very limited. It was very concrete. But then, yeah, they started to join and they say, okay, let's try. And she made some openings. She would cook some mushrooms with like, uh, she would make a, uh, oven mushrooms and she would give all the like people the visitors and slowly started to be like very visited place like there were openings with 200 people like 300 people the police was coming because they thought there was some sort of drug dealing event <laughs> and so they there were these like a uh, fbi like uh, inspectors like undercover like going to see the exhibition to see what was happening so it was a huge event in the in the neighborhood And and yeah, so slowly, like they, they were very interesting artists being part of it. And, and they also try with younger generations, but they also have like older artists. They have a really interesting program and it was all done very organically. And I think this, yeah, they call it Muro Sur. That is the Southern Wall. And uh, they, they were there for around four years or longer. Then they took a basement in the same building. They, made, they became a little bit bigger. Then they moved to another street in the city. And at one point, at, uh, at around the 2000s, it, it stopped. But still, it became like a very refreshed idea of what could it be, this sort of self-organization, an independent art space. It was very inspiring for many art spaces in Santiago, not just in Santiago, but for example, there were some in Valparaíso. There was an independent art space that said, yeah, we got inspiration from Murosur. So it was really this idea, yeah, you can do something with not so like many resources or materials, but just with the... Um, And this is not for, it's not a claim for making precarious the art system, but the other way around. So they were claiming their own space and their own possibility for experimenting, for proposing. So not with these sort of cons uh, constrictions from the uh, institutionality or from the power as it was experiencing the dictatorship, but more like with the constriction of the material, with the constrictions of your imagination. So in that sense, um, yeah, when I came to the Netherlands, I visited Ana Maria many times and we did an inventarium of all the documents that she had and all the photos and we saw, we went through all the documentation. So then, yeah, for me, it, the most funny thing, <laughs> and I think it's really appropriate to tell it here in this podcast, is that the other day I said to Ana Maria, you know, Ana Maria, I was too young then to know about this Murosur. So I never went to see an exhibition. And all what I know about Murosur comes through stories, <laughs> comes through things that I have been told through your stories, through other artists' stories. So in a way for me, it's a little bit like a radio program in my mind. Like it's something, it could be like a fiction, but it's a, a, a good fiction in a way because it really generated that it became also a tool for others. Do you also feel a responsibility with uh, yeah, sharing that story then? 
you know, because the story of Murasur gave you something, right? Without visiting it physically. But do you feel uh, that you then want to give it to other people also who are maybe more either like younger or more far away or that it's really impossible to visit the original and that you then... In a way, yes. I feel the responsibility, but also like a kind of uh, engaged and productive responsibility of retelling the story of Murosur. Um, yeah, I'm al always uh, interested and amazed by also like how the different art uh, organism or like the art uh, organizations sometimes are really related to some will of doing something of certain peoples of peoples that want to make it happen so there is i think in maybe in, in a general uh, society uh, cartoon image of the artist as being funded or being famous or going just for fame or or like this idea of the uh, famous artist that is rich versus like and when you are in the art world you will realize that it's completely the other way around it's almost like completely inverse so there are many things that are done unpaid that are done just for the effort of doing it and of course there are sometimes perverse relationships in terms that the, you need to overwork to get some sort of accomplishment to be able to continue and so on but I'm also interested by this sort of will to still do it I, f I see in Murosur this strong will of, okay, let's do it. We know the context is precarious. We know it's a little bit sad. It's a little bit uh, not proper, but why don't we do something for ourselves? And maybe for someone who could come. So we come back to Fernanda. Why don't we use the reality, but we transform it into the possible? Or why don't we overcome reality with these possibilities? that maybe are not fulfilled completely, but there's still this will. So it's also working with this will. And myself, I work a lot with that. I have this in my Musée Legitime. I started this museum inside a hat. And somehow it really, yeah, it takes of inspiration different modes of doing, but Murosur is one of them. So, yeah, if I am very honest, it's like in the different material context that I am involved, I tend to see that I continue doing what I am doing. <laughs> So there is this sort of uh, ongoing will of doing something, of communicating, of telling stories, of relating different makers, doers, of thinking, th reflecting through different kind of productions. So for me, it's interesting to somehow retell this story that refers to this will, initial will, because I think that's where everything starts. And sometimes with all the bureaucracy, with the funding, with the art world, with the art market, we tend to be very confused of why do we do what we do. As an artist, I have experienced it, like when you f like fill applications, for example, and you need to describe this will, why do you want to do this project? Ratnarif, why do you do yeah, 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 nay, nay, nay? Why do you want to get the next uh, funding? It does something to the mind, I think, also, when... Before we started recording, you told me you were writing down your dreams. And I really do think that these uh, structures, I mean, I've been there a lot, but you know, when I'm working on a funding application or in a certain way, I feel that my mind is literally structured in a different way. And my thinking, it doesn't influence also the moment I'm making the application, it also influences the day after. <laughs> and I almost feel like I have to undo that then again to find back other uh, ways of being almost or find back the wheel maybe that you um, mention so I was thinking what it is about the maybe transforming the real and the possible but also about erasure um, and how that relates to the stories you told us and also to telling stories but there is something about erasure that is very present in a dictatorship, but also in the neoliberal government that Chile seems to have kind of jumped to, right? There is not sort of the in-between phase that um, other states have gone through. And I'm, I'm just curious what you think what that does to maybe artistic practice in a general way, but also just to how we, how we feel being in a community of artists or how how that leads to publications like the one that's on the table, you know, where erasure is taken back again from these forceful 
gestures and actually appropriate it in a, in a different way? It's a very interesting question because, you know, you can see that in Chile, in the art of the 70s and 80s, there was some sort of, uh, even though there were many different practices, there was something in common. And that was is that all the art that was produced, or most of the art, was uh, some sort of expression against dictatorship. Of course, there was like some institutional art, but that was very minimum. So the whole art world was devoted to as a tool against dictatorship. And then the question was how to communicate this, how to represent or not represent this discontent, how to make like a, an actual change or how to make a, not a change, but how to manifest somehow. And you can see it in poetry, music, in theater, in visual arts, in everywhere, somehow. And in that sense, there was a, a very strong will. So there were like uh, many different movements. You can see in every single uh, movement of art and path that we're taking in terms of communication that all had in common that where there was this will to do something against Pinochet, do something against their, uh, their reality, what was happening. So that became a huge motor of the art world. So in that sense, the art scene was always like somehow provocative. Some people were more provo provocative, other less, but all the arts had like this sort of common force that moved it. And when Chile came back to democracy in the 90s, it felt like uh, you could have thought, oh yeah, now we have complete freedom, we can do whatever we want. There is like an open uh, new uh, blank uh, page yeah, to start the, everything it's anew. It's the downside of the blank page, I think. But then people yeah. felt completely uh, depressed. The 90s generation was super like uh, confused. Like there was, of course, a lot of this 90s mood of like, uh, I don't know, MTV, like pop stars, like there were some artists that engaged with it. There were some others that were still critical about the situation, but there was a feeling that this sort of thing that gathered everyone wasn't there, or this like some sort of shared will was much more uh, diffused and it became more uh, loose, more blurry. So I would answer to your question, Arif, that what, what it did, it was that it somehow uh, put down the sense of urgency, maybe with all its harshness, the dictatorship had this sort of sense of urgency of life is now, we need to do something. You can see that in every art expression, this sort of feeling. And in the 90s, it came the other way around. Like people weren't that, didn't have this urgency. Of course, this is super generalizing and in super in general terms, but maybe there is some sort of pattern. So maybe there was a deactivation of this will to do something. And I think now we see that it somehow came back through all these demonstrations, this sort of uh, collective making, collective doing, but still it's super complex because there are many different ways to seeing it. Like there is also like a lot of discussions, uh, what needs to be done. There are people who are very like uh, radical in terms, they say, no, nothing needs to be shown in the museums, in the gallery context, in the official context. We need to uh, completely make it empty and what is happening on the streets is hard. That's what it is. But there are other voices that say, no, we need to use every single space to, do well, uh, to talk about the possible. And then there are other voices that manifest different things. There are also like, there's a lot of question about the author, the authorship, um, this idea of the artist. It's very much questioned again and again. And then there is a, a whole like sort of rebirth of ideas around the collective making, collaboration. Uh, there is, for example, yeah, this, there have been many different uh, cultural manifestations or artists. For example, there is this uh, art collective, Las Tesis, that is a group of artists from Valparaíso that they created a sort of uh, performance, a song. That is a feminist song against the raper, against the state, against this patriarchal state.
And this became like some sort of viral thing that was reenacted by many women and non-gender conforming people in all the cities around Chile. And everyone was singing against the police, against the state, against the raper. And this was reproduced along the whole planet in many different, in the most like uh, faraway countries, there were groups of feminist people that were singing this song. And so you can see, for example, this for them it was very important. This they made some sort of, uh, some sort of a script that was played and interpreted by different people. And for them it wasn't that important to be the creators of the authors of it, but it was more important for it to be reproduced. So all these ideas that they are completely not new for the arts, but they they become they have they become fresh again. They become a need and they become like super urgent. So yeah, I would say that now there is a sense of urgency. Also in terms of environmental conflict, Chile is like experiencing in a harsh way the climate change because, you know, it's a very big country. So then if you would put Chile in Europe, it would go from Sweden to Morocco. So then you have many different expressions of weather and you can see what is, how weather is changing and how it's affect, affecting different communities. And you can also see the struggle for water and how the mining companies are taking a lot of water and also like the uh, like people who plant, uh, for example, avocados. There is this avocado business that dry like whole valleys, leaving the people who have always lived there for many generations without water. And then you have, of course, the whole, all the indigenous people that are one of the key uh, forces against this sort of, uh, this extractivism logics. And they are the ones who actually put their bodies and they're the ones who actually claim uh, to protect nature. Because, you know, for example, for the Mapuches, that is the, like some peoples that live in the south of Chile, for them, the most sacred is the, is the woods, is the nature, is the, that's, that's their cathedral in a way. And that's what they claim for. So it's in their cosmovision. It's very embedded to protect nature. So they they are they would give their life. They are giving it to protect their uh, nature. So then you have all these struggles coming together. Particularly these years. Of course, they were always there, but these years they have become more urgent. And in a way, I think the whole art production from many different voices and peoples is somehow super affected. I still, as we say, we talked before, I think it is some sort of learning process in which you need to reread the text. You need to take some sort of, you need to acknowledge it. Even if you decide to not do anything or that you can't do anything, or even if you, it's somehow like you still need to go through it. So it's, I think, that this very communal process. And maybe in the 90s it was much more fragmented. Maybe that's the difference. Maybe when there was the climax of this neoliberal reform, when it was still not pinch the bubble, the, it felt much more fragmented that everyone was in their own isolated realm. And I think now there is a sense, it's difficult because it's still like, sometimes we can talk it with very idealistic terms as if this would be amazing, it's a beautiful process. But sometimes it's harsh, there's a lot of violence, like people are also struggling. There are many artists that I know that they are going through also complex process. But yeah, it's a little bit like staying with the travel in a way, like that the this complex process becomes also very, it somehow comes back to what we were talking about, the will to do something. It really moves your, your grounds and makes you to ask this question of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah, and it's also like Fernanda does in the voice message always a rewriting that starts from somewhere, right? So you will never actually have the completely blank page, but you always start with the last word in a way. So in that sense, <laughs> I think we should come to a close, even though I think we could continue. <laughs> but maybe we continue another time. Because I think we did talk about Murosu, but it sounds like there is a seat for um, more radio or things related to this story um, in the future. 
That would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> you look with very special eyes, like the plants are maybe already made. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> no, but I think we should say that um, there will be a kind of reappearance of Murusur um, later this year in uh, Rosestraat in Amsterdam. Right, Martin? Yes. And yeah, very roughly, there was this project called Ekfrasis. That was the outcome of these conversations with Ana Maria. So me and another artist, uh, Giancarlo Pazzanese, we were both talking about these things with Ana Maria. What was Murosur, but what was it now, what it could be. And Ana Maria said that she wanted to do something, but not in a very nostalgic way. So she didn't want to review all what it was and come back to the story and make it a myth. But she said, no, I want to do something now. I want to do something new. And after these conversations, we thought, okay, yeah, now you are in Amsterdam. You are back in Amsterdam because she came back. And she has her home and in the Bellamy Plain. Mm -hmm. And we thought, yeah, maybe we could do a revival in the Bellamy Plain, like in the Southern Wall or something like that. But the Southern Wall is like made of glasses, like of windows. <laughs> so then, yeah, it was more difficult. And I said to Ana Maria, why don't we think of another format, something that could make it easier for the artists to maybe send their works. We were thinking about sonic experience or videos, maybe a publication. And then we came to this idea of ekphrasis, you know, like a, uh, like a written or verbal description of a visual mm -hmm. artwork. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, it's like a, a description of artworks. Why don't we work with this idea? And we decided to, the first idea was to make a book in which the artists would be invited. So we thought of inviting all the artists that once were part of Murosur to rethink an artwork for an exhibition in Amsterdam to be done in 2020, back then. <laughs> We didn't have clues of uh, corona or pandemic, mm -hmm. but it, this happened in 2017. And we started to record the artists one by one. And they like transmitted like a description of what they would do in this hypothetical exhibition in Amsterdam. And once we started to hear the, to the voices, we thought, yeah, actually the voices is the project. So we thought it should be like a sonic project. We should work with these sounds. And that's how we came to these uh, four sides, uh, like two LPs, in which we recorded these 29 voices telling what they wanted to do for this exhibition in 2020. And that became Ekphrasis. And now we were approached in a few conversations with Rosenstrat, uh, with Madelon Fansi, and she had interest on in showing this project in Amsterdam as an exhibition. So this year in August, September, we will show the, the project, but not just the LPs, but we are working with Cookies, that is a design and architecture studio in Rotterdam, particularly with Federico Martelli. We are working for building a, a landscape, a sound landscape of these voices. So it's not, we have the 29th descriptions of the artworks and we are going to position them in the space of the gallery. So it's like sounds in the space. And yeah, that's what it's coming. And we were thinking with Arif maybe like uh, doing some sort of uh, echo of this process. Beautiful. I'm excited about this, but uh, it's coming up. After summer, in the summer, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so to be continued for now, we are saying goodbye. Um, one final thing, do you want to end with a song that came up in your mind after this conversation, Martin? Yeah, there is one song that maybe would be quite appropriate, also thinking of Fernanda, that it was a song that was quite uh, sung through the demonstrations of 2019, And it's a song by a, yeah, a music group called Los Prisioneros that was very big on the 80s in Chile. And they have this song called El Baile de los Que Sobran. That is the dance of the ones that are... It's like the dance of the rejected. And I think it's quite uh, yeah, paradigmatic for the 
Chilean situation and process, but also it, I think if you speak Spanish and you listen to it, you can relate to the letter. And maybe for the non-Spanish speakers, it's also yeah interesting to relate to these sounds from those times. Thank you. Thank you. Es otra noche más de caminar. Es otro fin de mes sin novedad. Ellos pedían esfuerzo, ellos pedían dedicación 